Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, September 2nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hurricane response transitions to recovery. Then, Ida may have worsened the Gulf South's COVID crisis. Plus, an engineer's perspective on a fatal highway washout in George County. And a conversation with writer Ian Rosenberg. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves addressed the aftermath of Hurricane Ida at a press conference yesterday. He says the state has transitioned from the response phase to the recovery phase of emergency management. We still have approximately 37,000 power outages statewide. Many of those are still in the southwest part of our state. In Pike County leading the way with approximately 10,000 of those 37,000 outages in Pike County. The Walthall and Wilkinson uh, and Amit also primarily in the rural areas with power outages as well. This is down from a number of 136,000 at the peak. And so again, many, many heroes in these large disasters, but our linemen and linewomen uh, are certainly at the very top of those because they're the ones that get out in the, uh, in the storms and actually get power back restored. And given the heat advisories that we're having in the 100 degree plus temperatures, uh, getting power back to the homes where air conditions can get back on is certainly uh, very, very important. Deanne Criswell, who is the administrator of FEMA, was in Mississippi yesterday. She appeared alongside the governor. Those individuals that experience damage and power loss um, just want to say you should exercise extreme caution during the recovery phase. What we see is uh, several injuries can happen in the recovery phase. It's a very dangerous time from uh, structural instability, trees that are unstable, um, power lines that may be down, heat exhaustion as we start to see the temperatures rise. Please take extra caution to make sure that you're taking care. I'm going to also like to encourage everyone, and what I see across the country is that neighbors helping neighbors. 
it's always amazing to me how communities bond together, they get out and they look after their neighbors to make sure that they are safe and they have what they need as we begin this recovery. Mississippians seeking assistance in the wake of Ida can reach a dedicated state helpline at 1-888-574-3583. Overall, state officials concur that Mississippi was relatively lucky to escape the worst of the hurricane. Governor Reeves says he's in communication with emergency management teams in Louisiana where widespread flooding and power outages persist. Uh, We are deploying some resources at their request. Uh, including a military police company uh, from the Mississippi National Guard uh, and a engineering company, uh, both of which were originally and initially staged for Mississippi's response. Uh, they have been requested through our EMAC system uh, to move to Louisiana, and we have approved that. In addition, we have uh, significant numbers of firefighters, primarily from the fire academy as well as Uh, some central Mississippi fire departments that have deployed already. And we have also sent some uh, teams from the coast uh, into Louisiana. Experts say some parts of that state may go weeks without power. Coming up, oh, did you forget? There's still a pandemic in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Early indications suggest that Mississippi's massive Delta variant spike is plateauing. That said, it's a high plateau, with nearly 3,000 daily new cases of the disease and 81 new deaths. That's according to yesterday's report from the Department of Health. Here's State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs. We've had a a rough couple of weeks with pretty remarkable case numbers and really a a healthcare system that's been stretched beyond its limits. There's no doubt about it. And just want to go ahead and give a shout out to the great work that they're doing across the state and hope that if you see someone working in the hospital, you give them a, a hearty thank you because they're really going above and beyond. Yeah, but we are seeing some advances in other fronts. We're seeing an increase in the number of people who are getting vaccinated, and that's super helpful. We've got about 1.4 million Mississippians who've had at least one dose and about 1.2 Mississippians that are fully vaccinated. And that's going to pay huge dividends going forward as far as people who are going to get, you know, get infected or get severely ill or, you know, sadly uh, will pass away. If we look at the entire context, what we're looking at, there is some very exciting news um, from uh, around the world and especially from Israel, where it looks like that natural infection does seem to be really helpful in preventing future infection. If we combine that with folks who are immunized, that that will probably have real benefits at reaching more of a population threshold for getting back to steady state transmission. I do want to reiterate, we still strongly recommend that people, even if you've had COVID, go ahead and get vaccinated because we know that it will greatly augment your immunity and it it decreases the risk of reinfection by half. The fallout of Hurricane Ida does raise some additional COVID concerns. That's according to Dr. John Goday, who is a pediatrician at Merritt Health in Hattiesburg. He speaks with Desiree Fraser. What I worry about the storms is families and individuals who maybe not normally living together, you know, clustering together for shelter or for safety. So that is that combined with the Delta virus is really 
uh, a recipe for rampant transmission of Delta variant of COVID to uh, people who otherwise would not be exposed to each other. And, and if you recall, if you were around during Katrina, you recall that neighbors met each other, um, people walked around talking to each other, helping each other. It was really quite a beautiful thing to see. But there, you know, we need to exercise caution with mixing, uh, you know, of homes and walking around the neighborhoods and socially interacting with one another because that can increase the transmission of COVID. How are things in pediatrics? Compared to a year ago, we are seeing a lot more COVID. So if you could rewind the tape to 12 months ago, it was mainly we were talking about the elderly and people in nursing homes and people with predisposing conditions. Um, But now we are talking about young people. We are talking about children. I would say most of the high-risk individuals have been vaccinated. And then we also have a variant that is way more contagious than the original COVID. So as a result of those two things, we're seeing a shift towards cases occurring in children. They're sick, too. They're not winding up in the hospital at the same rate as the adults were, although they can get very sick. But they suffer. It's no fun for them either. And they can transmit it to other family members or loved ones who are at high risk for serious disease. Is there any portion of that group that can be given the monoclonal treatment? So if a child contracts COVID, they they are eligible for the monoclonal treatment if they are at least 40 kilograms, which is about 80 pounds, and 12 years old. Typically, we'll use the monoclonal for somebody with, you know, you have to look at each individual case. If the symptoms are very mild and, and they're not having any complications, just supportive care, rest, fluids, fever reducers is appropriate and close monitoring. However, in my adolescent patients that have contracted COVID, usually there's either something going on, maybe uh, maybe they're uh, overweight or let's say they have a history of asthma or something of that nature. I'm recommending those uh, young people get the monoclonal antibody, which will give them the best chance to recover as quickly as possible with the fewest complications. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important to mention? The combination of the contagiousness of the Delta variant, the change in our lifestyles, which occur around a hurricane where there's a lot more social mixing, and also returning to school. All of these things, it's almost like a tinderbox ready to catch on fire. I'm concerned that our numbers will not plateau or they may rise as a result of the storms, which is why we should do everything that we can, use all tools in our toolkit to fight this. And that would include getting vaccinated as well as wearing masks in school for everyone over the age of two and socially distancing. These are the tools that are available to us and they work. Dr. John Godet, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us. It was my pleasure. Coming up, a deeper look at a highway collapse in George County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. It seemed for a bit as though Mississippi may have escaped Hurricane Ida without any loss of life. Then, late on Monday, a rain-soaked stretch of highway in rural Loosedale collapsed into a 20-foot pit. Two motorists were killed. It'll take a while for state and local officials to determine what specifically went wrong that night. That's according to Jacob Forrester of the American Society of Civil Engineers. He speaks with Rob Lane. First off and foremost, I want to say that it's just a terrible tragedy. The loss of what I understand so far has been two lives and that roadway collapse is an awful thing, and I think several others were hospitalized and hurt. Of course, our, our prayers and thoughts are with each one of those people, and um, for those survivors, we're hoping a speedy recovery. From an engineering perspective, it, it is, it's hard to say this quickly about exactly what transpired. Of course, the initial thought is that you know, it's just an inundation of rain, Lots of run from the hurricane uh, caused uh, a weakening of that of that roadway bed, and it ended up washing the road out. And unfortunately, I suppose with the time in the evening that it was, it just it was realized too late. By the time that um, people realized that it had washed out, uh, that there had already been a couple of accidents there. So that was a terribly unfortunate thing. I, I am interested, I suppose, to find out what the engineers in that area and MDOT, Mississippi Department of Transportation, end up finding out about what exactly transpired. But the initial thought from the engineering community that I'm attached to is that it's just a inundation of rain. So much rain fell in such a short period of time and wreaked havoc on that roadway. So you've made clear that it's way too early to say whether or not engineering or structural deficiencies had anything to do with this very, very tragic incident. That said, in 2020, the American Society of Civil Engineers published uh, this report on infrastructure in Mississippi, and it was pretty damning. It was broken down sort of by sectors of infrastructure, and if I recall correctly, bridges in the state scored a D minus, and roadways in the state also scored a D minus. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, and that's correct. You know, the overall grade in Mississippi was a D-plus. Uh, as you say, both bridges and roads, they both scored respectively a D-minus. The fact of the matter is, is that infrastructure has been a major topic of concern, both in Mississippi and all throughout the United States, for several years now. And with what we've found here in Mississippi, the D-plus, you know, we see, we look at our peers throughout the country and we see Many of those other states have very similar grades, but it does give us an opportunity to talk here locally about what we can do to improve, how we can improve. You know, you, you mentioned about the bridges, and I think in 2018 we, we found that, you know, more than 400 timber pile bridges have been closed, uh, you know, with the immediate threat that they could fail. You know, I think that the state and the legislators took action and they voted to provide about, I think, if I recall correctly, it was somewhere around $100 million annually for bridge maintenance and repair, and, you know, as well as an additional $250 million in bonds, if, if, if I recall all that correctly. And, you know, that was good action on their part. I think that we as American Society of Civil Engineers would like to see 
more action on that, but that's that's a pretty decent start. You know, the state's fatality rate in 2018 on roadways and bridges, I think, was one of the highest in the nation. It was about 1.63 deaths per 100 million vehicle miles traveled, and uh, that compared to about 1.13 deaths nationally. You know, I, I think that there's some socioeconomic components um, associated with that. I think there's rural roadways associated with that. And and then, you know, of course, when many of our, our roads and bridges are in rural areas and it's more difficult to get resources to those areas for life-saving measures, you know, I think that that could play into it. I think that there's absolutely something to the rurality of Mississippi in addition to the needs associated with 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 the infrastructure needs i think that that's probably going to take a lot of smart people both engineers and uh, lawmakers getting getting together and coming up with good solutions on as well as you know emergency management personnel getting together in a room and seeing if we can come up with some means of which we go about addressing those types of issues jacob forrester of the american society of civil engineers thank you very much Rob, thank you. Have a great week. Coming up, a conversation with writer Ian Rosenberg. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Political polarization in America is at or near its most intense and living memory. With that has come the proliferation of fiery, even menacing rhetoric on social media and in real life. But what's legal and what's not? Writer Ian Rosenberg's new book is called The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms. There's the right not to speak. There's a right to criticize public figures. There's a right to non-disruptive protest in school. There's a right to offend. There's a right to publish without being stopped. There's a right to parody. And there's a right to espouse thoughts that we hate. The first thing you said was freedom to not speak. Give us an example of that. So when we're talking about, for example, Colin Kaepernick refusing to speak, refusing to sing or dance for the national anthem, we're really talking about a case that's called the Barnett case, in which two school children during World War II refused to pledge allegiance to the flag. And the court ultimately found that there is a right to remain silent, that there is no way that the government should be constitutionally allowed to compel people to speak a message that they don't agree with. In any of the 10 cases, are there any that people think they understand it, but they don't at all? I think the most common misconception about free speech is that free speech does not include hate speech. And for good and ill, that is just untrue. Hate speech, whether it comes from the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville or from hateful people protesting military funerals, there is a constitutional right to protect the speech that we disagree with and even the speech that we hate. And I think that We need to understand that as a baseline before we take the more complicated step of deciding whether that is 
an element of First Amendment protections that we want to continue. When does hate speech cross a line into illegality? For instance, so, you can say you hate the president of the United States, but you can't say, I'd like to kill the president of the United States. Well, you, you might even be able to say that I'd like to kill the president of the United States. Really? Uh, it, yeah. In chapter one of my book, I talk about how there is a right to advocate for illegal action. And we start with talking about Madonna saying at the first women's march that she thought about blowing up the White House. She was so angry. And we go back to the case that really began American modern free speech law, which is called Abrams, which involved immigrant anarchists who were against World War I incursions into the Soviet Union and threw leaflets out from the rooftops of the Lower East Side, attacking the draft and attacking the war. And they were put in jail. But the Supreme Court case that actually affirmed their imprisonment created our modern notion of free speech, led to the test that divides protected speech from unprotected speech, which is called Brandenburg. And the, the test boiled down to its essence is that speech can advocate illegal action up until the point that is directed to and likely to cause imminent physical harm. The right to free speech can encompass many rights, but ultimately it is about preventing the government from interfering with their free speech rights. What do you think is the biggest threat to freedoms that are afforded by the First Amendment? Unfortunately, I I think that the clear threat to the First Amendment and our democracy is the denigration and the demonization of the American media. When President Trump calls the media the enemy of the people, that's part of a calculated approach to try and undermine our current democracy. And as President Biden has said, our, our democracy is really fragile. We need to know about the rights of the press. We need to know how the press supports our democracy. And I think that people have many misconceptions fueled by Trump and others that the media somehow is allowed to run rampant and just lie with impunity. And that is absolutely false. That is not the libel test, and that is not American constitutional law. I think we need to protect the press. And to do that, we need to begin with a better understanding of the rights and limits of the press as part of First Amendment law. Ian Rosenberg is the author of The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms. Thank you so much for being with us, Ian. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.